0: I'm back with Matt McGregor to talk about the week's noteworthy headlines in the world of acquisition. So let's dive right into our first here. And this one actually I saw from you posting on LinkedIn. Electronics manufacturers send warning shot across CMMC's bow from Federal News Network. Quote, DoD's own cost analysis estimated that the cost of a CMMC maturity level three certification to be more than $118,000 in the first year. This means DOD's own estimate of CMMC compliance costs is too high for 77% of the IPC survey respondents, and the IPC is an industrial base association here. So I thought this one was interesting. Again, we're like the cost of CMMC is going to be something that people have been estimating. Um, now we're going to start seeing what the actual costs are, and and then and we'll see how this all shakes out and whether it actually does lead to a decline in participation in the defense market. Looks like they had a nice little chart here. Most companies said that they were not very likely to be forced out of the defense market from CMMC. But some said that they were somewhat likely 22%. And two per, only 2% said very likely. And then 23%, neither likely nor unlikely. So I thought this was an interesting one. Pretty good piece here. Matt, did you have anything to, that caught your eye?
1: Yeah. I, I, and I think this goes back to what we talked about before, where we're not really worried about the big contractors. We're probably not even worried about the second tier contractors. It's when you start to get down to that fourth, fifth tier where they're just providing components, but they may have access to some CUI information because the design is considered you know, CUI. And, and then it's so the non-traditionals that maybe haven't done much work with the department who, who now have a to entry because they have to have this in order to get a contract. Yeah, I had some interesting dialogue on LinkedIn about with some folks who are probably smarter than me about this, but I still didn't get a comfortable feeling that that those sub-tier contractors would be able to actually get this reimbursed. I'm sure the larger ones will figure out a way and they'll have the ability to spread the overhead and, and such, but yeah, I'm still not clear on it. And it's certainly clear, if I'm not clear... And from all the traffic on LinkedIn and other articles, the the DIB, Defense Industrial Base is not clear. So what would be, to me, what would be even worse about this is if it was really easy for all these vendors to get this reimbursed, and they wouldn't have to actually put any of their own money, but they perceive that they have to because we're not being clear. And so they they leave and they find, they try to find more commercial uh, customers or something. Yeah, I don't know, we have some work to do here.
0: Yeah, I thought it w- that's it's a good point. I wonder down at the lower levels, when you think about it, if they're mostly commercial, let's just say they're all commercial and they're just selling to the government via primes and stuff like that. That means that they probably don't have all these fancy cost accounting systems. That means they probably haven't segregated their business units to do defense versus commercial and then have different kind of accounting standards for each one of those divisions. And so it would seem to me that that cost kind of would get burdened all on, or maybe they would spread it across all of their commercial business and make them less competitive. Or maybe they would just be able to charge higher prices through the primes and then back up to the government. And so it is all just rolled up in there. And because the primes are like the second or third or fourth tier level, they can do their own negotiation and they don't have the same potentially TINA requirements or something like that for cost of pricing data, they can't get away with it. So maybe I'm not really sure. And I think it's interesting that we were talking about how DCMA is having problems having certifying the, the certifiers, right? The actual accreditation people. It'll probably be a number of years before they even get to those 300,000 suppliers, and most of them are in the lower tiers.
1: Yeah, I don't know what you mean, Eric. They've got, they got one, so they got started. They have one, so... <laughs> yeah well i was i was when I'm i saw sure. when i
0: saw the headline from this article i was like man he just uh, copied me because last year i wrote a blog post frank kendall fires a shot across the bow of cmmc and this one's very similar but from a much bigger outlet
1: people are stealing your good ideas there
0: stealing my phraseologies so let's move on to the next one the space force <laughs> wins with OTAs c4isr quote today nearly 500 companies participate in the consortium three quarters of which qualify as non-traditional suppliers for single-phase projects, SPEC, which is the Space Enterprise Consortium, has been known to award in less than 90 days after posting a solicitation and deliver a and deliver a prototype in a fraction of the time a traditional FAR-based contract. So here's just this. I didn't find this article all too interesting, but it was just another kind of double down on commentary on hey, Space Force is actually looking to grow these OTAs. They're saying like 12 billion is what they're looking. I remember it was 24 billion last year that they're looking to put on this contract, probably not in a year, of course, because of their whole entire budget, but I think over the five years it was 24 billion. And it'll be interesting to see whether they get to that target, even like the less ambitious, but still very ambitious, 12 billion over like a five-year period. So anyway, just a space force doubling down on doing things differently, right?
1: Yeah. The one thing that that always gets me with the consortiums, and and Ben McMartin always points out that. OTs were not like we're not meant to be a small business set aside, but I always viewed them as like they're a lower bar, and so you should be able to attract more non-traditional. And the article does talk that they actually have three quarters non-traditionals, which is great. Yeah, but, but how much I, of the I, dollars? Like, I want to see how many awards. So I went on their I went on their site. Some of the consortiums actually have metrics, and they'll show like the different awards to so the different vendors and and what the the numbers are. So I wanted to see, it. and there was nothing. It's a lot of opaqueness about like where the dollars are going. And I still wonder if the larger primes haven't still taken some of these consortiums hostage and yeah, they can respond really fast. They're like ready to go. They got all the staff and, but are the non-traditionals, are they getting a good piece of the pie? Do they have a chance to really put together good proposals? So I don't know. I still feel like the jury's out on that. I'd love to see more. more.
0: Yeah. And and of course, uh... The DOD IG has been pouncing on that, the GAO as well. And they're gonna probably be putting in a lot more rules as to seeing where the money went, who are the performers, because they don't like, even though it's similar to what the primes, right? They don't you don't see like the subcontractors necessarily through FPDS. But yeah, it'll be interesting with the OTAs here. And I think one of the things Ben McMartin was also saying is, hey. OTAs actually sometimes take longer, right? It's not like the fast track it, or maybe it shouldn't be the fast track. It's you want a good contract that's tailored to the need and done on an individual basis without some of the regulations. That doesn't mean you need to fly through here. They're saying 90 days, but it doesn't necessarily need to be that fast. The There was a nice paper from Amanda Bressler and Alex Bressler and MPS where they're looking at kind of the time to solic, like for responses to solicitations and particularly with the RFIs, they were like 10 day submission period was like most of them, right? 10 days or less. And only a few were like more than three weeks. And that definitely puts probably more of a strain on these smaller companies than the large, which just have this big staff that that's their job.
1: <laughs> Although we did learn, I did wonder, I loved that podcast you did with the, the wrestlers. That was really informative. But I, I did always wonder if they, like some of these timelines, it depends on, it always depends on how you measure it. And like how much advanced work was done and stuff like that. Because as we saw with all the pitch days, it always seemed like everything was being done in one day. And that was like all the marketing was like one day, same day awards. But in fact, there had been like months of advance, 24 hour days of people working. So yeah, I always wonder about some of those timelines too.
0: So the next one that we got... Acquisition reform that works and no one has heard of from Breaking Defense. And this kind of gets right into what you're talking about. Quote The cyber program now relies on the creativity of DOD and the services to generate the requirements. Rather than relying solely on research ideas generated from within the upper echelons of the Air Force, AFWORKS now provides open topic opportunities, allow small firms and entrepreneurs to propose any idea or technology that may have an Air Force application. This one actually was similar to the Space Force one. It was just like an overview piece of a lot of stuff that's already been going on so i think it's unfair to say no one has heard of the Cibber open topic i think that's been pretty well advertised uh, by afworks and other organizations <laughs> now for a few years but still it's good it's good that someone's poking on it and saying hey this is a good thing and we should probably expand
1: yeah and i, I think a lot of credit does need to go to eric snowgrave who snowgrave who who was on the hask and did a lot of did a lot of support behind the scenes by all accounts to make AFWorks be able to have the authorities they had. So I think, yeah, I think his points are well taken. I think AFWorks showed the way. I think like DIU and, some of the, and DARPA, I think they these are exemplars for how you can do things. It's just a shame to me that Afworks has to do so much of it and that that more of the programs aren't doing it. Although, I do think there is a lo- there is a growth in, you see more BAAs out there. ABMS is using BAA. I know the Army, um, RCCTO, I think they call it. RCO they do more BAAs and stuff. So there, I think there are growing. I think people are taking the lessons, but yeah, so much improvements are still needed internal to the department and the requirements process. Yeah, I think it's still, still pretty broke.
0: Well, I, I would think that you would really start seeing change in that front when, because the BAAs are stuck in s S&T land, I guess through 6.4 probably, but if CSOs, right, commercial solutions opening kind of like their equivalent that can be used further down the chain. Yeah. Yeah, that would, be, that would be awesome to see all that. So let's move on here. Software development, DOD faces risks and challenges in implementing modern approaches in addressing cybersecurity practices from the GAO. Quote, for example, 12 of the 18 programs reported that DOD's lifecycle activities only supported agile methods to some or little or to no extent. Some or little to no extent. <laughs> so there's a the difference there. And program officials also reported challenges associated with implementing agile software development so I think this one, there was a report a little while ago where they looked at like timeline between releases and most of them weren't. So supposed agile programs were actually delivering in terms of years rather than months. And it should be even releasable every week or day or whatever it is. I know you've been looking into this a
1: lot. So what's your view? Yeah. So well, I think we've talked about it before, but I always find the GAO titles... <clears throat> I, I, n- I never know why they can't take a little bit of a positive spin. It's always, it's like DOD is terrible and DOD <laughs> can't find their hat. Yeah. You know, but I, if you look at the details of this report, for one, there's a couple things I think that are pretty noteworthy. One is that there's actually no software programs that are not business systems in their analysis. So they only looked at the business systems and they really came up with a, I don't know, it's a very interesting dissection of The different approaches, they make a distinction between Agile and DevSecOps. They make a distinction between an approach that supports continuous iterative development using DevSecOps, an approach that supports continuous iterative development using DevOps. And there's a lot of gradations and stuff like that. I think they could have been a lot more clear. And the bottom line is that, that out of the 16 of the 22 programs are actually delivering software at least every six months, which... I mean, for DOD, given how far we've come since the Dib study and the DSB study back in 2018, that's pretty good. That's real progress. So yeah, we're not there. We have a long way to go. But I think they I think the the department deserves a tiny bit of credit that that these programs that even a couple of years ago weren't even talking about agile are now delivering every six months. So I don't know. There's some good and good to take away, but no doubt we have a lot more to go.
0: Yeah, I, I think your point is really well taken there. That getting to six months itself down from two years or more is really should be looked at quite fondly, actually. And we should be looking. There should be like a chart of the progress, right? I didn't go through all 126 pages here, but it would be nice if they tracked each one of these guys and showed what the improvement was over time, what the experience was of the people. Like living that system. And of course, like one of the weird things was they're like Jonesing on these programs, and a lot of them are really old programs, right? GCSS, G- Global Combat Support System Army, GCSSA. That's a, that's a really old one. Deems, <laughs> Increment One. So these things have a lot of legacy <laughs> and baggage. And it's, that makes the, the thing much harder. And they're bus- these like these massive business systems that were trying to consolidate all these legacy systems as was the Vogue over the past 20 years. So I don't know. I, like they just found like the hardest programs, the most, and, and the one, and, they, and as you're putting it, they actually were making some progress. So the next one here, and I put this in here to juxtapose why Agile fails because of corporate culture from DZone Agile. And this one was shared by Rob Slaughter over at Platform One, and he comments, this is one of the best articles I've read providing insights into why DOD and US government fail at Agile. No one in the history of the world has ever scaled agile and been successful. The best anyone can do is de-scale the organization. Large organizations need to focus their attention on how they can best achieve flat and how more and more of the organization can operate like small agile teams versus focusing on what percentage of their large teams are running agile or sprints. Culture eats process for breakfast. So I think the real point of the article, though, was I, I think of this kind of idea of scrum agile fall or water agile fall something like that where you have uh, you you try to say develop a small developer team you guys go be agile but every other process around you that supports you is going to stay in the exact same manner that it was and so that's just going to be self-defeating to that so even the fact that i guess you got release times down to 6 months for some of these bigger legacy programs should be looked at pretty favorably when you think about the institutional constraints the budget process, the requirements process, how contracting's done, how all of the business and financial management stuff is, is pretty astounding. And then you also have the test empires and all the accreditation stuff. Again, I guess I'll double down on Rob Slaughter, that culture eats process for breakfast. Yeah. Every day of the week. And
1: this was a really good article. I, I like, I think I pulled like 20 different like little mini paragraphs out of it. It's almost like the book that that me and you love so much, that like Getting Agile. I felt like I felt like they they really hit on some super key things. One of the one of the ones that I think OS or DOD at large could try to be better at is there there really are these silos, and I think the allowing each organization to establish its own processes and roles in an insular way really reinforces a lot of those silos. So I I think that is one way is there's a whole, you know, process around staffing a policy or staffing some updated guidance or manual. And maybe those need to be done more as one, like jointly developed together to show integrated processes. The department still is very strong on, like you said, there's the test community here, the product support communities over here, cybersecurity people here over there, and DevSecOps has tried to integrate them and bring them left so that they're not like waiting at the end to do all this additional process stuff, but there still is a culture of silos. So I thought that was really good about, here's the quote that I really like to cope with trying to do Agile because everyone wants to do it. Attempts are made to adapt the Agile framework so that it fits the established silos and processes. The fragile newborn Agile framework is thus torn apart, overhauled, and reassembled. I call this Franken Agile, a creature that looks agile from the outside, but behaves like a typical classic Matrix delivery on the inside. I just thought that was so perfect, but yeah, great
0: article. <laughs> yeah, Franken Agile, that's a good one. But I think you you bring up the good point there that the the Agile team is supposed to be like fully integrated and like almost self-sufficient to some degree for a lot of the release purposes. And definitely, we have those silos and the way that the adaptive acquisition framework. Of course, it's much better than what came before, but it still has those intersections of 14 or more now functional DOD instructions that that bring some of that back down. And I think not all of it's bad, of course, all all of it's good to some degree, but then when you put them all, to, all together at once, maybe it, it becomes overwhelming to some degree. We can move on here to SMC's Space Safari office to focus on urgent launch needs from breaking defense. Quote, Space Safari is part of SMC's Special Programs Directorate, which will fall under Space Systems Command Enterprise Core once SSC is established later this year. The TAC-RL2 team, Space Safari's first mission, got got a satellite ready for launch in record time and noting that what formerly would have required two to five years took 11 months. The objective is 24 hours from call-up notification to on-orbit capability. Of course, the Air Force had its own safari organization, uh, a big safari, that was doing a ton of great stuff in the kind of upgrade and maintenance world. And now the, the SMC, the Space Missile Command, has its own focusing first on launch. And they really want to just get down the time to launch from, it's been two to five years. I didn't know it took that long, but <laughs> I guess that makes sense. They want to get it down to 24 hours. That's pretty ambitious.
1: Yeah, 24 hours. Is, that's, uh, that's crazy. but. I think the only way you get there is if you start to have a sense of what are the, what are the typical urgent needs? Are they the ability to have persistent ISR over a certain region or a particular type of ISR or something that you can, it's a commercial sensors and they can just be loaded onto a bus and launched. They're gonna have to really make some of these things very modular. They're gonna probably have to have some things, some sensors on hand. So like stock up on some of the key components and stuff to get close to that 24 hours but yeah it is interesting they chose 24 hours given that it's typically two to five years but um yeah oh, but where, like
0: yeah. what is the re- <laughs> i i can't believe i'm saying this but what is the requirement for 20 like <laughs> where in the world <laughs> does the air force say oh my god if i don't have a, this satellite up there this payload up in 24 hours like i'm screwed
1: yeah that, it's it i i wish they wouldn't have done that i think maybe they did it Maybe they did it just to make a point knowing it wouldn't be reached, but yeah, I think they, if they had chose two months or 90 days or something like that, it could have been probably more realistic, but I, I do love this. And I, there was an article that you didn't include that, that I really liked that I think goes along with this, which is the whole com- commercial services office that they're stand that SSC will stand up where they've recognized they need to take advantage of more of the commercial stuff. So this to me is just like a, an acknowledgement that. Yeah, there's commercial services, but there's also a lot of commercial hardware. And so, yeah, why not take advantage of that commercial hardware, commercial buses, potentially, uh, to be able to uh, do some of these very tailored, streamlined, mature technology that that meets an urgent need, however you want to define urgent. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that one's also going to ride on industry, which is just seems to be trending that way anyway. And that goes, going along with that, the FAA defends SpaceX to Congress from AVWeb. I'm not going to read this one out, but essentially, uh, the FAA inspector warned about to abort the launch of the SN8 for the Starship over uh, Boca, Ch- Boca Chica, Texas, and it did a belly flop and and crashed. And of course, the FAA was pissed. But then they said that they recertified the launch process and they modif- and they now have a culture that they don't have the same problems that SpaceX. FAA is now defending SpaceX, that they've right they've righted their wrongs, which is nice that not only that was SpaceX responsive, but that the FAA kind of came to their defense rather than the kind of classic, oh, one thing went wrong and we're going to bring it down on you.
1: Yeah, I do have to imagine behind the scenes after that, SpaceX probably realized that we really screwed up here. They probably eat a lot of crow behind the scenes. Just to say, yeah, we, this is, this was bad. Here's what we were doing to correct it. Try to build up that confidence, but yeah, you got to give the FAA credit that, yeah, they didn't just stick them in limbo for months and months or something. They, they could have really made their life pretty hard. And the one
0: problem here, it seems like for me is like, how is the FAA certifying like SpaceX when SpaceX is clearly the knowledgeable insider? So it's like one of these issues where the regulator has less information and less Talent or skill to understand the problems than the thing that they're trying to regulate, and in this case, they were right. But I think there's probably tons and tons of cases that SpaceX could point at them and be like, "You guys were wrong about that."
1: Yeah, I don't know. FAA does have a lot of very knowledgeable people, and they they have consultants and stuff too. And they, I think, part of it is they realize it's a little bit of a culture clash too, right? You have the FAA that it takes years for them to certify things; they're very risk averse. And you have to give them credit. We haven't really had the many plane crash. We have a very risk-averse organization monitoring, a very risk-taking organization. So I think the fact that they've come as far as they have, it really does, you, do, you really do have to give them credit. But it makes sense that they probably would adopt a similar mindset to the airports. They're, gonna, they're doing these spaceports now. They're probably going to have to adopt a similar approach where there are certain assurances, software assurance, hardware assurance, that... Maybe there's like redundancies, like that they feel confident that there's enough safety measures in place that things aren't going to crash into a neighborhood. So, yeah, they're probably not expert as much as SpaceX in certain areas, but I know they've they've done a pretty good job. So, I give them some credit too. Yeah.
0: From my understanding, SpaceX has actually complained more about the launch requirements stemming from Air Force regulations than anything like with the FAA, because a lot of them they do use the, the military test ranges or launch ranges even for commercial, but still like when the regulator is also the purchaser like DOD, I guess it gives them a little bit more clout to come in and say what's what first private company. But then there's also, as you said, citizen safety concerns. So of course that's something that's always going to be a valid concern. Let's move on to the next one. Pentagon launches artificial intelligence effort to prep combatant commands for JADC2 from C4ISRnet. Kathleen Hicks described the artificial intelligence and data acceleration initiative, an effort that will deploy technical teams to combatant commands to prepare military networks for joint all-demand command and control. These teams will provide the commands with expertise in catalog- cataloging, managing, and automating data. So I think this is actually pretty great and goes along with that Raider Fund, right? I think to some degree, they might be corollary efforts and the Raider Fund is a rapid I don't know exactly what it stands for, but it's a rapid innovation fund for joint interests, and the first use case seems to be uh, JADC too. But I think our friend Dan Pat would be very commending of this move to put technical teams with the combatant commands and start integrating them into that function, and it just seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, it does, and
1: yeah, I think you're right, Dan. <laughs> Dan, Dan likes pushing it to the edge, which is which is where they need the capability. I don't, I will admit, I don't completely understand this one in the sense that the combatant commands, they have all kinds of systems out there. They have a lot of, a lot of different people running, a lot of different contractors managing data, doing different things. I am still curious to see if these teams are these teams that go out and stay for three months, for six months with, when you do AI, you you have to spend a lot of time cleaning the data and organizing it and structuring it so that you can actually like feed the algorithm the right way it takes time for the algorithm to learn so i don't know like how much hand-holding there will be is this something that they go out they do a two-month sprint and they come up with a plan and they leave them with the plan do they execute it for them who brings the money i don't know i have a lot of questions with exactly like how these are executed but conceptually it sounds sounds pretty awesome yeah well
0: i don't see what's the problem in just having like these technical teams almost continuously co-located. It seems like that kind of persistent team effort makes the most sense. And you'd want them to have the context along with the operators themselves to understand exactly what they need to be tagging and managing the data with, but then also potentially tailoring what kinds of data do we need to make the algorithm work better? And that kind of interaction seems to make sense. So yeah, who's going to fund it is def- that's a perennial problem. But if you could just get guys out there like a continuous team, like that seems great, but then is it a contractor or a, or organic or who does this? Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of questions.
1: But yeah, it sounds good. I hope they uh, hope it works. That <laughs> would make more one. sense.
0: But uh, the next one here is sticking on JADC two. What the budget reveals and leaves unclear about the cost of JADC two from C four ISR net again. By one conservative estimate, the national security ex- a national security expert expects the Pentagon to spend more than one billion on JADC two next year. But the budget left many details murky with chunks of classified spending, no top line figures, and much of the funding mixed in larger programs, raising questions with insiders. So here's the perennial problem of just like trying to aggregate like what's what in the budget. Even though the, the program budget was supposed to illuminate us to the program out. Of course, programs are all multifunctional and they had to start putting ML in their like budget summaries. I think this year it's 872 million or something like that. But even then, how do you like put a number on that? Or is that just like specific programs that are ML only or autonomy only or other programs trying to implement some kind of application of it. And then that kind of goes back into JADC too. I guess my point of view is that we got to resist the notion that we need to combine all these things into a single program line item, have no overlap, and get the perfect insight into what the cost is and what the capability is. Goes back to this program stovepiping problem that created the jadc two problem in the first place, or the problem that JATC two is trying to solve, rather. So I don't know. I guess that's just one of my one of my points, and I think this also goes back to the GAO, like how do you provide oversight and insight into these things when they're not just like a clean cut siloed program of record. Yeah.
1: And I think there's the, to your point about, okay, you combine it all. What does that tell you? There's a fixation still a little bit on how much money is going to this. Whereas if they never, if the air force and the other services had never called this out as ABMS, but just subtly put little pockets of money in the different programs for networking and radios and decision analysis, all the different pieces, the infrastructure. If they had just done that silently, they probably and just done little programs with that. They probably could have gotten away with this without all the the hoorah. But by talking about it as this consolidated effort it has disparate pieces that are not organized the way traditional traditionally everyone you know likes it. It, it creates, I think, like unnecessary political fallout. So I don't know. I find, I do find it interesting. What what would it tell you if you had all the dollar aligned? Because if you're supporting all the other program lines, and you can see that, you can go to those the different places. You can look in the R docs. You can search for EBMS. You can see the different places where it's at. Like right now, K C Forty Six has some for the pods. There's networking stuff. But you can. So it's not like it's hiding that much. You can go to the R docs and see it. It's just, it's a sort of, I don't know what difference would this be if it was a single program record? How would that change the investment decisions if you're, if they're going after all the right stuff? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. To...
0: Well, you could see it, but even then imagine if I agree with you, if the Air Force just decided to do ABMS by through already funded programs, that would have probably been much easier for them to actually get going. But then again, the program's would have to be funded to that, or they would push back and say, look, I already have my baseline requirement. You can't throw this unfunded thing on top of me.
1: So so maybe there would (laughs) be
0: some pushback to that. But overall, the ABMS here, and and you brought it up, there's another article we're going to get to about, you know, they're going to, ABMS is now really putting most of the effort to these pods that were going to go on the KC46. And we heard from the chief of staff that it was actually going to, it, they're, they're going to try to put them on everything else. So it's not just one little thing, but they're really focusing down. They went from probably a bunch of these random like, on-ramps and no one knew what the value was coming out of it, where they're going. And now they just focused it down into, and now they focus it down into just one, right? Like almost one big thing. And then they have a couple other things going on, but I think 150 out of that, 204. And then the the architect has another 86 million, something like that. Yeah. Marie Mack from GAO said when we first started looking at ABMS, it was a demo after demo. And we're, what's your point? <laughs> right. And now they're focusing it down. But even then, so I this was what I was going to get to. If you had a one pro, if you had ABMS kind of spread around all these different programs, they wouldn't necessarily they might say that they're doing networking and stuff like that in in the JDocs, but they wouldn't necessarily say how much money it is unless that it was its own pack, the lowest level line item that they individually broke out. Yeah. You could in- install some kind of rigor there to force them to do it in a certain standardized way, but we haven't really seen that very often. Or, or that would be a, a weird new way of going about things, right? Like standard like work breakdown structure of program at the BPAC level that map up to different structures, right? So you have a multi-structure view rather than the single major force program. And I'm just rambling on a bunch of random things here.
1: No, I agree. I think on the whole, though, like the different major thrusts within most of the rdt lines, if there are like individual efforts, it, they're fairly broken down. It depends. It's PE by PE. So you're right. In some cases, you probably can't see very much. In some cases, you can see pretty clearly. But yeah, I just go back to how would that change the... It may change congressional perception because they could see the dollars better, but would it change how they would want the dollars allocated? Would they say no you're not doing the right things or would it just be a comfort level that we have one program now that we can say we have a baseline and, and we can track this and we can tell GAO to go audit it really cleanly it's just more to me it feels like it's more of like a comfort thing than it is an actual impact on investment decisions so I don't know but
0: I'm with you so let's move on to the next one here let's go to the Navy new USV to deploy loitering munitions by U-Vision Naval News to supply the HERO 120 for the U.S. Marine Corps organic precision fire mounted OPFM system. The system will be integrated with the LAV-V, that's the light armored vehicle, JLTV, and the LRUSV, and I believe that's long range unmanned surface vehicle. HERO 120 is a high precision smart loitering munition system with a unique aerodynamic structure that carries out pinpoint strikes against anti-armor, anti-material, and anti-personnel targets, including tanks, vehicles, concrete fortifications, and other soft targets in populated urban areas. And they're saying that because it's quite precision and doesn't have uh, a a bunch of (laughs) collateral damage. So I, I guess Navy's still moving out and doing a lot of interesting experiments here, and this one just struck me also because it seems like there's a lot of these like loitering munitions and other types of UAV companies I've just never heard of. I never heard of U-Vision and I've never heard of the Hero 120. So I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones I've never heard of either, but uh, these are probably things that may or may not be household names in the not too distant future.
1: Yeah, true, especially being integrated into the new uh, long-range unmanned surface vessel and then being on GLTV. Yeah, that could be could grow pretty quickly yeah this is another example to me of the marine corps they've abandoned like we talked about before they've abandoned their tanks they've abandoned all this heavy equipment and they're looking at creative ways of achieving effects through cheaper more modular systems where you can put these on different vehicles it can do the the crazy thing about this one was it can do isr and then also do a strike so while it's flying around and loitering can can do isr and then once the target, you know, is chosen, that it goes after it. But yeah, a pretty awesome. ISR, do you know?
0: Did you read yeah. that one? Because it's like, that's, um, it's got to right. be disposable. <laughs> like you're putting to, you already need some <laughs> of the equipment in order to track and, and destroy. So maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's, pro-
1: it's probably not as, uh, as sophisticated as like our eyes like are bought. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. Did you, do you see the picture of the LR, of the long range unmanned surface vessel? It's, is that?
0: no i did not
1: it's another company like you said that i had never heard of but yeah metal shark
0: they've been working with the marine corps for a little while yeah that one was actually a pretty cool one. i didn't know that was large That's though really that one cool. seemed it seemed pretty
1: small but yeah it looks, my, it looks like a yacht it really does it looks like a small yacht but the fact like a futuristic that you yacht stick, like, like an elon musk uh,
0: yacht or something
1: but the fact you can stick these on there like you can have all these sensors on that thing and then stick some of these precision fire mounted things on there that is really cool you have you have a hundred of these in the in certain areas of the south china sea or something that'd be pretty scary to what like
0: degree that. like they're taking just a bit, it seems like from an outside view that the navy's taking a very different approach to autonomy than the air force whereas the air force seems to be centralizing a bunch of stuff into skyborg and then they have their um, autonomy core system like does is the navy kind of working from a single kind of autonomy system, and then branching that out into different vehicles. And it just seems like a, a much more dispersed kind of program. I don't know. That's just my impression.
1: Oh, no, I agree. I think the Army and Navy are ahead of the Air Force, maybe by a lot, because you haven't really seen Skyboard progress to where you see it being fielded at any kind of scale. Whereas the Army is doing remote combat vehicle, leader follower, the Navy has the UCAV and the different, the, the tanker, unmanned tanker. They're doing all kinds of unmanned stuff. They're like leaping ahead and the Army's right behind. I don't know what the Air Force is doing, to be honest.
0: So we'll move on with and stick with the Navy revamping aviation maintenance and new 10-year FIOP plan from USNI News. And so this one actually goes along with, it's an aviation infrastructure plan to complement the $21 billion shipbuilding maintenance plan that the Navy has. There was actually very little details provided. I'll be interested to see where they're going with this. And I know the the Army as well has been talking a lot about reinvesting in their organic capabilities and the Air Force too. They've been talking about it less, but they've been still saying we need to get to 2% reinvestment in our facilities. And I think 2% was the number and they're like at 0.6 and creeping up, something like that. There it is.
1: Yeah, I think, the, I think it will also, as you get more fifth gen platforms, I think it will it will push you to have to reinvest in some of this because you could get away with a lot. I think even like the 18s, the F-16s that have been around forever, the 15s and a lot of these legacy platforms, 810s, you, you still have like metal fab shops and stuff that are just like repairing wings and like very old school. If you go in some of these places, you, you actually think you could be back in World War II, you know, kind of thing. Like it's not high tech. And then very awesome and the people that are amazing, but not high tech, but, but with fifth gen, like F22s and the B, B21s and the, the future unmanned ones that might have a lot more stealth coding. And stuff, those are probably going to need better infrastructure. So this kind of makes sense. The one thing that I took away from this article, though, that I don't think gets enough print is the fact that the ranges that the um, services have are just so old, the, the capabilities of the radars and the different threat systems that are out at a lot of these combat training ranges are generations old and they haven't been modernized. And so they don't really present, represent like the current threat. Like they might have onesies and twosies, but really not a cohesive representation of what you would face in some of these more near peer conflicts. And so I think that's really the one that I would like to pay attention to is see how they see how much money goes into that because you can't neglect training. If you neglect training, you lose, you can lose a lot of your edge. Some of these smaller nations like Israel, they don't have huge fleets, but their training is really good and they invest in that. So yeah, if we start to lose our combat ranges, I feel like, um, I feel like there's a lot of second, third order effects that would be pretty negative. So yeah. So I hope, yeah, hope they get the, to get more money, build up the ranges, build up the, get, get that infrastructure in place.
0: Yeah, I was listening to the the Navy, one of the Navy's budget hearings, and a congressman asked about uh, like a, a flight test range in his state, and the response was that would be great, but I fully support this budget, <laughs> and the budget is what is is sufficient, and that's always, of course, they have to say that, but I think it just always gets back to this point that we always make of the budget is focused on these program outputs. You always want to invest in the cool new things and get the toys. And then you expect that the kind of back end stuff is funded through that almost like these maintenance things, these tests, they need to be standing big programs of themselves because investment in inputs leads to accelerated progress in those programs that they're all supporting. So I I don't know. We just need to get over that weirdness. The next one here, U.S. Navy's deadliest new subs are hobbled by spare parts woes from the day. The U.S. Navy has swapped more than 1600 parts among its new Virginia class submarines since 2013 to ease maintenance bottlenecks as components that are supposed to last 33 years wear out decades. According to the Navy, 70 percent of part swaps were between block one subs that were first entered into the service in 2004 and block two vessels initially delivered in 2008. So overall, they're talking about that this problem of swapping parts in the submarines. And I hear that this actually happens like all the time, especially for batteries, right? Like batteries are always being pulled off and put somewhere else. But the total number was 120, 13, 171, in 2016, 201, and then two, 452 in 2019. So it's getting worse and worse. And then it started declining last year and they expected to drop to 82 in this year. You know, this is of course one of these maintenance and supply chains problems that we've been hearing about for a while, but it seems like it was primarily on that first block and maybe getting it under control. Of course, just throwing more money at it helps, but uh, we'll see if it's just the first block. They're already moving on to block four, I believe. Or
1: Yeah, if you have unreliable parts, it, it goes back to what we've talked about with estimating, right? Like you do these cost estimates, cost estimates at the beginning of a program, and, and you make all kinds of assumptions. The plane's going to have 8,000 hours of life without any degradation to any structural components. All of the components, well, electronic components, all 4,000 hours of life. And so you go through all these things and assumptions, but then, yeah, then something happens like this where the parts is failing more, and then you got to do all these upgrades and DMS things, and it throws your own budget just for a loop and it kills your readiness. So yeah, I hope they can find a way around this.
0: Yeah. The ills of it, Yeah. It's always funny though. So there's all, everyone recognizes when, by the time you're operating in statement, like things change and you have to like, update your plans and tackle all these problems in real time. But then it's then how much did all that planning at the beginning really do? I don't know. So it'll be interesting i think for something like this kind of mature like i think the virginia class was a pretty mature system for the most part the same with columbia class maybe it makes a lot more sense and for the disruptive stuff and maybe for the some of the software stuff it makes a little bit less sense so you know it, you always have the spectrum and the next one we got here lockheed martin wins 4.9 billion contract to build advanced missile warning satellites Lockheed Martin received $2.9 billion for the first three next-generation OPIR that's overhead-persistent infrared radar satellites, and they'll get $4.9 billion for the next three. And that includes ground mission software and engineering support for launch vehicle integration. So I just thought it was interesting. Of course, they're getting the next tranche here of next-gen OPIR, which was one of the big mdap type of middle-tier acquisition programs but it went up from $2.9 billion for the first three to $4.9 billion for the next three. And I get like, you got software and some engineering support, but like double it, <laughs> nearly doubling the price. So I wonder what they learned in, in the first increment and whether maybe it's just like material price inflation over the subsequent five years or whatever it's going to be that's causing this. I like, I'd like to understand that.
1: Well, the one thing is, I, if I recall, the, the MTA program was not for the full-up satellite It was mainly for some of the sensors, the big sensor, and then pieces of it. So I don't know, maybe did they separate out the costs for the the MTA piece, maybe defray some of those initial costs, and then that's the rest of it for the integration and uh, testing and fielding. So I don't know. I'd I'd have to see the breakdown there, but that does not seem right unless... I know they have like polar orbit and a geo orbit, so they might be like two different satellites, which might drive... GEO typically has a lot more costs with it associated with
0: both of them were GEO and then Northrop Grumman is doing the polar set I don't know I don't know if Lockheed Martin is I don't think the OPIR is doing the same mission there for the polar but yeah I don't know that's interesting yeah they said Northrop Grumman received 2.4 billion dollar contract for two polar satellites yeah it'll be interesting yeah I wasn't really clear on that and I think that's one of the things GAO is not really clear on too, right? OPIR was an MTA program. You have five years to field that program and then move into major capabilities or something else like a rapid fielding. Was I, I wasn't really clear, I guess. Maybe the MTA was just for development work on a lot of the payload and the sensor type stuff. And then they got a 2.9 billion, but that seemed like it was a little while ago, so I had to imagine it was part of the MTA because they didn't break it. They didn't have a different program.
1: Well, there was a phase zero and a phase one. MTA was supposed to be the phase zero. Okay. So, I don't know though. It's the double. That's one of the
0: things like I'm not opposed to that, but it's just, I guess when you just look at these top line figures and you're trying to pretend like you're doing oversight, sometimes you just got to dive right into it. And so I'm not opposed to like, there being a bunch of programs and you just have to know the situation of each of them. It's just, it it just makes the job harder. And it shouldn't be easy for people on the outside to understand these major complex programs. It's a tough one. The last one we're going to do here is Air Force says its next missile test could kill 219 giant clams and nine snails from Popular Mechanics. The report, the re-entry vehicle plunging into waters near, I'm not even going to name that, the atoll in the Pacific Ocean including AGM-130 183A Arrow the hypersonic missile could kill thousands of coral colonies hundreds of clams and a handful of snails. I thought this was interesting because I've never heard of I've never seen this environmental impact report from a missile test but I'm just like astounded at how big that impact really is. Like <laughs> Why Couldn't they test it somewhere else? Why is it being tested from that atoll? I don't know, but
1: I remember they used to do that with a lot of those islands. Kwajalein, still, there you go, takes that's the it. The bulk of the missile launches. And what was that one island, Vincennes, I think, that used to just get shelled by the Navy non stop and stuff. Yeah, they, I don't think we, we fully appreciate some of the impacts of some of these destructive tests, though. So. Yeah, I wonder what
0: the impact was from just like World War II, like the Battle of the Coral Sea and stuff like that, like what what all that damage was. And that's what is also pretty scary just about any kind of even moderate conflict with China in that region, like kind of the destruction of that coral, you know, triangle that that exists there up to the Philippines.
1: Yeah, with like, you you start to when you read about like some of the impacts of sonar, just how it affects whales and dolphins and stuff. Yeah, there's. Having, having a military is uh, not a free not a free endeavor. There's a cost, all kinds, of, all all
0: over the place. But, uh, that wraps us up for the week. Matt, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you later. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.